0: I'm excited to share the first episode of a new podcast called Private Equity Deals. Much like capital allocators, we'll share investment conversations that previously occurred only behind closed doors. In each episode, we discuss an individual private market deal with the manager to learn about the company's deal dynamics and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. The conversations also shed light on how each firm goes about their craft. The first season of Private Equity Deals consists of eight episodes with some of the top private equity managers released every other week on Wednesdays. We've shared the first on this feed, a conversation with Pete Stavros, co-head of KKR's U.S. private equity business, about a recently exited portfolio company, CHI Overhead Doors. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Private Equity Deals on your favorite podcast platform. And as always, you can keep up to date and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. Here it is, the first episode of Private Equity Deals. All opinions expressed by TED and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. Pete, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. Why don't we do the elevator version on KKR? Go through a little bit
1: of history and what the firm is today. The firm was founded by Henry Kravis and George Roberts, who are first cousins. So there's a real family feeling inside of the firm, which from the outside people often are surprised by because you hear barbarians at the gate and then you come inside the firm and it's really quite different. From 1976 through the late 90s, it was really a US private equity firm. And then Henry and George went, on a path of expanding geographically into Asia and Europe so creating regional private equity businesses in Europe and Asia and then they expanded by product category so credit real estate infrastructure and so on and even within private equity if you look at what we have in the United States my partner and I oversee a flagship private equity fund you know regular way 19 billion dollar mega cap PE fund we have two growth vehicles one focused on healthcare one focused on technology We have a new middle market strategy, and then we have a core vehicle for very long-term holds, 15 years. Really, the firm over its 47-year history has expanded, I would say, significantly in the last 20, 25 years. And at the highest level, assets of the firm? Assets of the firm are about 500000000000 billion. We've got about 2,000 people, more than 20 offices around the world. And quick experience as a public company? We went public some time ago. There was a lot of expectation that something about it was going to be very different. You guys were going to be subjected to the short-term whims of the public markets. None of that has really come to pass. So I would say for an investor at the firm, being public really hasn't changed much other than giving the firm access to permanent capital that we can then go use to build out and seed new strategies. So in the private equity strategy, and we're going to talk about CHI Doors What's the ethos of the strategy that this deal fits into? The ethos of our strategy in US private equity is around transformations. We're looking for good companies that we can inflect in a meaningful way and transform maybe operationally, maybe through acquisition or growth, maybe strategic repositioning, top grading talent. But the question at investment committee is always, why is it going to be different in our hands? Not just, okay, it was growing last five years, 8% top line. It's going to be 8% top line next five years. That's not our deal, even if it's a great business. We're looking for something that we say, we see an opportunity to really inflect the growth or take the margins up massively. So CHI Overhead Doors fits into that transformation program. We saw something that was good, but could be so much more. What's the history of the company? CHI Overhead Doors was founded sometime around 1990 it's a garage door manufacturer founded in Arthur, Illinois. That's where the major manufacturing plant is. This is Amish country about quarter of the workforce is Amish, real craftspeople at this company they build very high quality product. One of the reasons why CHI from the beginning had a unique competitive advantage is the incumbent competitors were created many decades prior. What happened from the time the competitors were started to when CHI was started is the market changed. Architects started to say I want variety in the door. I don't want just a white door with no windows. I might want a wood overlay. I might want carriage house doors because so much of the curb appeal, visual square footage, a lot of it's the garage door. The garage door companies that were created many decades ago when there was less variety, if there's less variety, you want low unit costs. So you drive the heck out of production, few changeovers, you're happy to warehouse stuff. Decades later, things change and CHI was able to start its operating model from scratch and they built a really flexible operating system where they could deliver on very short lead times, very high variety. It was just not possible for a competitor to adapt unless you were going to shut down your manufacturing plants, shut down your warehouses and start over. So CHI from the get-go had a unique advantage. What do the rough economics of a business like that look like? The rough economics of CHI overhead doors when we bought it were 20% or so. EBITDA margins, I think they were 21%. Gross margins in the low 30s, solid mid single digit growth. It had been a steady, slow market share gainer. They were always signing up new dealers who would look at CHI's value proposition and say, wow, I'll move away from the old line supplier because I can get more variety on a shorter lead time. And that allows me to take market share because I can sell a faster install to my local customer.
0: I know this business had been owned previously by other private equity firms. And we'd love to hear the dynamic of when
1: you decided to buy it. What's different when you're the fourth private equity owner in this case? When we were looking to buy it, what we saw was that dynamic of good business, but we thought could be so much more. Grow faster, be more profitable, be less capital intensive and networking capital intensive. We really felt like you could transform the economics of the company to a different stratosphere. And part of the way we were planning on getting there was by engaging the workforce in a different kind of way. There were some signs turnover was higher than you would expect in a manufacturer like this. Engagement was not measured. That's always a dead giveaway when you ask what the engagement scores are like, and they're just not even measured. So there was no input coming from the workforce. And even walking through a manufacturing plant, when people don't make eye contact, subtle clues that people are not engaged. And then the financial clues are too much inventory. When you talk to the sales force, smart people, but there's not much of a growth plan. It's just, we got a better model. People are going to come to us. So it wasn't as proactive as it could have been. There wasn't that much innovation. They weren't driving as much productivity on the shop floor as they could. So you saw the combination of some financial, hey, this could be better, some financial indications of that, and then just interpersonal and Q&A. You can ask some questions and get a sense that there's more to do.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit about the process of this coming into your portfolio. Not being the first private equity owner, why, when you bought it this time, was this the right time as opposed to the one before or the one before that or the one before that? It was just too
1: small. We didn't even see it. Even when we bought this, this was really a mid-cap deal for us. and we had always had a thought we would start a mid-cap strategy, so we were happy to do it, but this was a $250 million equity check and our fund sizes are many, many billions. So prior to this shot at it, it just would have been too small. So how did it find its way to you? It was an auction process. We had heard good things about the business. I think Barclays sold it back in 2015. We were on a big list. They were going to call the world on it. And we jumped on it, got an early shot to go study it, meet the people, walk the facility, had already done a fair bit of work on the market, decided early on this was something we really wanted to do. So we preempted the process at first round bids, we had a final round type offer. Our price was certain. We submitted a term sheet on a contract and we said, we'll sign this in 72 hours. The seller literally didn't believe it. There's just no way you're going to do this. You guys have done so little work. So the founder of the seller actually spoke to George Roberts and was like, are you guys really going to do this? And George said, yeah, talk to Pete. We're ready to go. And then we signed it in 72 hours. What was the diligence process like to get you the conviction that you wanted to preempt the so there was some limited information in the data room at that point, so you could do some financial analysis. And there was things on the financial side of piecing together opportunity. We could look at how has steel moved over a period of time and how have their steel purchases moved? Were they capturing all of the deflation that had been happening in the steel market? The answer was no. You're combining things like that with, well, who runs procurement? Well, we don't really have one. There's really not really a of procurement tell us about your last three Salesforce effectiveness initiatives. We don't really do that. And then you look at the org structure of sales and there's one sales leader with literally every salesperson reporting into that person. There's no structure. When you think about time and territory management and how salespeople are spending their time and dealers not having a growth plan tied to CHI, it's a little bit stitching together pieces of information that tell you, okay, we know it's a good business. We know we could do so much more. The world's a competitive place. People are going to figure this out. Just go. And even if we have to pay a little more than we otherwise would want to, these are the assets we want to make sure we get. Without throwing
0: darts at prior owners, I'm curious why some of these things that you could see so quickly and clearly as professional business processes hadn't been installed previously by a series of private equity owners.
1: I don't want to make it sound like we're the only ones who do this, but we have a really operationally oriented investment team. I myself used to do four Kaisen events every year a week of time working on a shop floor. We would go to Japan for 10 days at a time and we would have the founders of the Toyota production system take us around to a dozen of the world-class lean plants in the world, right? They all exist in Japan. We've spent enough time in operations that with the right questions and some financial information, we can find the opportunity. I wouldn't trust us to go run a business, but we know enough to know where the opportunity lies and how to get it. Again, I'm not saying we're the only ones who operate that way, but relative to others who owned it, they may not have had quite that orientation. Also keep in mind, it was a good business. People made money. It's not like the prior owners had a bad deal on their hands. Somebody doubled their money, somebody tripled their money. These were good deals and it was a good company.
0: What was that deal dynamic? You preempted the process, but presumably in a business like that, owned successfully by three prior owners, you could imagine a lot of your competitors would
1: want to jump on that. So how does that actually work? It's a little bit the opposite where people say, fourth private, well, why are we going to do this? And the investing committee would typically come to the table saying, come on, this is our strategy to buy the fourth time. What could we possibly do with this thing? Good business, but it's been owned by private equity for 20 years. So it's going to get bid to a very low return. Everyone knows it's a good business. So it's going to get bid to a 10% IRR. That doesn't sound that interesting. How did you figure out what price to put on the table to effectively preempt the rest of the competition? We tried to triangulate around where high quality building products businesses had traded over time. These were low double digit type multiple businesses. I think the fact that it was a garage door company also held it back a bit. It wasn't something sexy in building products. It was like, ah, garage doors, like a Masonite type business where people would say, good business, but not that exciting. There's not some market penetration story. There was a market share gain story, but it's not like garage doors in totality had some big growth story behind it. So we felt like that low double digit zone was where it was going to trade, which is where we bid. Then we just kept going up, trying to preempt. But the whole process of preemption is a fascinating psychological game of how do you make the other side feel like it's worth not going through a process? Because speed and certainty are only worth so much particularly when you have a good asset. So convincing someone to take it off the table early with your price, it's a lot of psychology. You were implying this was a multi-stage preemptive process. Yeah. So walk me through how it went. So we bid $625 million and said we could sign in 72 hours. And they said, that's great. Glad you love it. We're not in that big of a hurry. We suggest you keep playing out the process. $650, 670, dollars I remember I sent an email, the title of which was Last Gasp. This is our last shot and we're not playing in a process. In truth, for small businesses like that, it's not a good return on time to hang around to the bitter end, to invest $250 million in the grand scheme of a very large fund. There was some truth to the threat of if we can't come to terms, we can't spend the next 60 days on a small investment. So we'd love to do it. But if you are hell bent on running a full process, I get it. That's your right. But it's not going to be with us. I think we upped our price four times. Other times we have a different approach, which is just this is our best shot and we really mean it. And it kind of depends on the situation which route you go. You just have to mean it because you're gonna lose your credibility with the market. So whenever you say this is it, it's kinda gotta be it. In the scheme of everything you're looking at and get excited
0: about, what percentage of deals do you think you're trying to preempt? High.
1: And what percentage do you think you ultimately win versus the ones you have to walk away from? I'm not sure about the second one. The reason I said, hi, we know what we want. When we find that situation of good business, we could do more. We want to own it. We're not going to do something foolish. We're not going to just bid all the return away. But back to the return on time perspective, once we know this is what we want, we want to take our best shot. And if it's not going to work out, it's not going to work out. We'll go on to the next one. We try and preempt frequently. I couldn't give you a percentage. I just don't know. And then in terms of how frequently that works, I would say it depends on the market. If it's a super hot market, sellers are like, why would I do this? Who knows what's going to come out of the woodwork? If it's a little shakier and people see real value in speed and certainty, it's more likely to work out. I wish I had percentages on all this, but that's qualitatively how I think it works.
0: And what was the process like from getting
1: that preemptive agreement to close? Really fast to sign. I think we literally signed in three days. And then it was a fast closing because we had no HSR. We had nothing remotely in the space we got early termination of HSR and we closed in 40 days, some short period of time. Why don't you run through HSR for those who don't know? It's just antitrust approval with the government. So you can get early termination in 30 days, effectively, if there's no reason for any concern. It could drag on for months if the government has a reason to issue what they call a second request, which is give us more data. We really need to study this. We might ask the seller and you to agree on some covenants or asset divestitures or something of that sort. We were nowhere near that, which is why we got a quick close. Let's turn to what happened once you own the business. There are a couple levers you mentioned. Why don't you walk through what your game plan was at the time? We didn't use a lot of leverage. The percent equity in the deal would have been 40% or something. Top grading of the leadership team did happen. We brought in a talented guy I had known, Dave Bangert from Danaher. I had hired separately to run Ingersoll Rand, Dave's old boss, Vicente Reynal. So knew a lot of people who knew Dave and Dave knew us. So that was an easy hire. And Dave lived in Indianapolis. So it was a drive to Arthur, Illinois, which is by Urbana-Champaign, University of Illinois. So a little bit remote, can be a difficult place to recruit people into. So there was an opportunity to bring in some really operationally oriented folks. We did bring in some new environmental health and safety help. The injury recordable incident rate, which is OSHA's key metric of safety, was 14 at the time. So what that means is for every 100 people in the plant, how many people per year were getting hurt and was 14 out of 100 per year. So you add that up over five years, that's a lot of people. She brought in new help there. There was relatedly a big opportunity in scrap and rework and they made quality products, but inconsistently. And it's interesting how much you will find parallels between safety issues and quality problems because they both speak to the process in your plants. So we brought in some operational help. We brought in some marketing talent. There was a good sales effort, probably not as much around strategic marketing. So we brought in people to help there, filled out the board with a mix of people who brought operational skills, functional skills, and then some industry knowledge. And then we went on this operational improvement journey. Everything from how you buy raw materials, how much material goes in each door, productivity in the plant, safety, process, how we load the trucks, route efficiencies, soup to nuts, everything that we do. As would be typical, we turn over every stone. So you mentioned when you were doing your
0: diligence on the company, you walked into the plant and the eyes of the employees may not have lit up. It's one thing to say you want to create all these operational improvements. What did you do... To get the culture changed in such a way that people would be engaged and be excited about the changes you wanted to make to drive financial performance?
1: So, the first thing we always do is just to do a baseline survey. So, you just do an engagement survey and see how people are feeling and what their concerns are. And then you do a Pareto analysis on the 80 20 of what are the big issues. And then you commit yourself to changing the way the company operates to address some of those issues. And then you create a do loop of more feedback, more action, more feedback, more action. And over time, people feel invested in. They feel like they can trust the leadership team. We're in this for the long run. We're willing to invest in the business, invest in them. That's a big part of it. If you talk to the CEO of Gallup, Jim Clifton, he would say, the number one thing on engagement is people who supervise other people, are they getting feedback and are they acting on it? That's everything. You can ask very sophisticated questions and long surveys. That's all that matters. So we spend a lot of time on that. We brought in a culture change organization called LRN, this brilliant guy, Dove Seidman, who wrote a book, How, the concept being how you do everything is really what matters. Dove brought in consultants who worked with us in little focus groups made up of supervisors, hourly employees, and worked through what's not working. What makes you happy in your day? What doesn't? Where are we having challenges? What would make your work easier? Then we do a lot of Kaizen. I mentioned this earlier. We participate in those. We expect the leadership team to participate in those. And that involves everything from I spent time on the road riding with truck drivers, making deliveries of garage doors, to working in the factory one week on how we're loading doors. How can we do it more safely, more efficiently, make it easier for the driver on the other side when he or she is making a delivery to unload the doors? to how can we change our packaging to improve quality.
0: curious how you think about the resources that you bring to bear into these companies in the sense that you've got a business that's been running, you're bringing in new management, now you're talking about outside advisors, different consultants. How do you think about where you and your team are spending time in these businesses compared to going off and looking for
1: your next deal and just letting the management team run with it? Well, in terms of how we get engaged, We do a lot of work to try and identify the opportunity. So we will say, we see X dollars or X percent opportunity in scrap. And the approach with the leadership team is often, you can't tell people what to do because you can't hold them accountable. So what we try and say is, here's the opportunity we see. All we care about is getting the opportunity. And we want to get it in the right way. We don't want to do a slash and burn thing or something that's not going to stick. So we want the capability to be embedded in the organization. But we do want the results... And if you want to do it yourself, or if you want to go hire McKinsey, or if you want to use Capstone, we have people internally, we're flexible. We just want to get the outcomes. And that way you get ownership while having people feel like they're accountable to an outcome. Then in terms of how directly involved we get, it's hard if it's all non-deal team resources. The deal team runs the board meetings. Everyone knows the investors are ultimately accountable. And therefore, the leadership team is accountable to the investors. So I do think it's helpful if you have involvement from the people who have made the investment, who chair the board, who sit on the board, to also be in the business. By the way, it makes the board meetings way more productive when people are like, I know exactly what you're talking about. So we think it's important. And in terms of return on time, it depends on the magnitude of the opportunity. So in a situation like this where we were like, oh, my gosh, if we could really unleash the full potential of the business, this could be an epic deal. If it was more on the margins, we can get a little bit, I'd probably opt more towards an outside non-KKR resource.
0: Do most of the identification of those opportunities in data analytics come before you've made the acquisition?
1: Not really, because you have to move so quickly to win in this world. So you have clues, but you don't have the access to data and the time if you're going to be effective in winning these assets to be like, well, I got to get to the one decimal place. How much money is there in scrap? How much could we lower inventory? How much faster could we accelerate growth and market share gain? And some of which is unknowable. The market share gains we drove in part were lead time reductions. And knowing how much you could shrink lead times down relative to the competition, you could analyze that forever and you just need to get into it.
0: Now you own it. You see all these operational improvements. You bring
1: in some leaders. How do you decide what to do first and in what order? There's a leadership tool that we borrowed also from Toyota Ocean Connery is the official name, but it's now known more broadly as strategy deployment or policy deployment. People call it different things. That is a way of cascading priorities into an organization. How you prioritize, and then if the priority, let's just say one of them, scrap production, how does that cascade down to individual plants, leaders, shifts, so that it all adds up to what you think you can get? There's a leadership tool we use to do that, and it is as you would expect. You go after the biggest opportunities. It's constantly Paretoing, like, how can we get 80% of the results without drowning the organization in priorities? Because if you have 12 priorities, you're going to achieve none of them. It's got to be what are the critical few that you're going to get this year.
0: So how did this go from 2015 when you bought it forward in terms of the progress you were making on these different initiatives?
1: It went really fast initially. We went from 60 of EBITDA In 15, 16 was great, 17 was great, 18 was great, 19 was great. We were, I don't know, 130 of EBITDA from 60, all organic, no acquisitions. And then COVID was a big setback. The plants in Douglas County, which I think on a per capita basis had the highest COVID rates in the Midwest, there was a real problem staffing the facility. Our entire leadership team got COVID. There was a lot of reluctance to masks and everything from a safety perspective that we were trying to install that was hell on the company. So 20 and into 21 was really tough and then we recovered. We should have been at 175 EBITDA, we went flat and then made it all up and by the end of this year, business is on fire still. How do you decide in a situation like that
0: when you think about selling? You mentioned at the onset, you have this separate core fund where you're going to own things for 15 years. Things are going really well. This is a business that clearly does well in private equity hands. In this whole world of continuation funds and all this,
1: how do you think about the exit? and deployment, making the investments, we try not to call the market where it's like, well, now's a bad time to invest, and now's a good time to invest, and now's the time to go heavy in tech, but don't do industrials. No one knows how to do that, is our belief. So we try and evenly deploy a fund over time, over four or five years, and diversify by sector. Likewise, on the exit side, once we've achieved 80% of what we came to do, we start to head for the exits as long as the markets are reasonable. We're not trying to say, well, now is the perfect time to sell. But as long as you look at the markets and you say it's a reasonable time to sell or take a company public and we've done 80% of what we came to do, we exit. That's as good of a philosophy as we've found on the exit side. What was the multiple like on entry? You mentioned 250 of equity. I think we paid 13 times on entry and on exit 14 times or something, there was not a huge uplift in multiple.
0: And yet through all of this, it came out in the news that this has been one of the most successful deals that KKR has done in a long, long time in terms of rate of return. There is one piece of this that we haven't talked about yet, which is this whole employee ownership. And would love you to walk me through what you
1: did with employee ownership and how all that worked and impacted the results. Back in 2015, day one, we close the deal, we show up, and we announce we're going to do a bunch of different things at this company. Invest in the facility, invest in you, and we start to lay out what these programs will look like. And by the way, you're all going to be owners in the business. And the way we did it here was we set up a pool of options for all of the folks in the distribution centers and the factory through which they would participate. You might ask, well, why would you do that versus just giving everyone individual options? It's administratively more difficult to do the latter, although we do do it and the turnover was high. So if there's high turnover and we give you documents and you sign them and we sign them, and then you leave, and we got to go chase you down and close out your account and then issue new ones. When you don't have a lot of stability, it's hard upfront to do it that way. So we roll out this program. And as is always the case, after you roll it out, people say, I don't understand it. And I don't believe it. You're the fourth private equity firm to show up. Come on. We're going to have this big payout at the end. I just don't believe it. We're very careful to under-promise at the outset, so I think we told people they would make if we hit our base case. And we said, on the one hand, it's not a guarantee. On the other hand, we really hope we could do much, much better than this. But if we do this, everyone here is going to make at least $15,000. That would be our hope. Obviously, we did much better than we ever thought we would do. So the end payouts ended up being $175,000 on average, and we had hourly workers and truck drivers make almost a million dollars. So it ended up being far beyond what anyone thought was going to be possible. The work we've done with Gallup and all the data we have indicates that ownership can impact retention. People will be less likely to quit because they'll say, this could be a meaningful payout. I want to see how this goes. But it's all the other things added on to ownership that drive engagement. So it's the quarterly owner meetings that we do. And during COVID, we did monthly owner meetings. They saw our revenue, our earnings, our growth, which may not sound like a big deal. But when you show up and you say, great news, revenue was up 12%. You're going to get questions of, but why are my wages up five or seven or why is it not 12? The more transparency you commit yourself to, and if you operate in that way, you just need to be prepared to answer questions. While I'm on the topic of wages, there are some core principles around how we do ownership. It cannot be in exchange for wages or benefits or wage increases. Last year, wages were up 12.5%, the prior year, 7%. So that wages were going up at a rapid clip. So this was not in exchange for that. And you can't ask people who make less than $100,000 to invest in the company. It needs to be an entirely free incremental benefit. This is not about shifting risk onto workers. Over the years, we paid four dividends. Those dividends amounted to about nine thousand dollars per employee. That is just a signal of this is real. You are actually going to participate in this, and you're not selling any stock. This is just a dividend, so the sale will be much more meaningful than this. But it's those moments of wow. We're getting more information. We're having a voice in what's going on. We're getting these dividends. I'm seeing the investments being made, and we didn't talk about this, but There's a whole program, this was the first time we piloted it, where we turned over some rights to the workers to determine where we invested money. And what was really fascinating about that was they asked for investment that all related to health and wellness, which we did not anticipate and didn't even piece together until it was years of, first, we need air conditioning in the plant many manufacturing plants are not air conditioned in the country. And this was central Illinois, really hot in the summer. And that was contributing to safety and quality problems. So something we would have done anyway, but that was the first thing they wanted. Then it was build us a cafeteria with healthier food options. Then it was build us an site medical clinic. It was all health and wellness related. Now we're working on making that more programmatic where we have a belief that employees, if they can direct their own health and wellness, are going to engage with it more, as opposed to a company saying free gym membership, which people may not want. It's all of these things that create an ownership culture, which is an overused term. But how do you get people to feel like, I own my outcome, I own the responsibility that the company has placed on my shoulders, and together we own this company and where we're headed. It's all of that stuff together. It's not just you hand out stock and people all of a sudden change behaviors. It's a lot of work, a lot of communication, financial education. We did financial literacy training with Operation Hope. And then it's over a multi-year effort that you see behaviors change this is not a quick fix. This was a seven-year journey for us. Ingersoll ran another great story around engagement and ownership was a nine-year journey. What are some of the important but subtle aspects
0: of the ownership that from the outside you might not appreciate are important
1: in sharing this ownership with the employees? There's a few different success factors we've noticed for when does this go well. Number one, the leadership team has to be super passionate. If the leadership team is like, I'll do it just because you're telling me I gotta do it, Pete, I'll do it. Don't bother. It's not going to work. You're not going to change the culture. This is a second job for them to drive engagement and do all of this work. That's one commitment to the leadership team. Two, you've really got to look at how do you make this a meaningful wealth creation opportunity for people. Sometimes you'll hear folks say, We gave $500 a stock. I wouldn't bother. I would give a cash bonus. For this to work, people need to see a path to at least six months of their income with upside, hopefully a year of income on average. And then the third thing, I do think you need some degree of stability in the workforce it's hard if you've got a retailer that is churning their employee base 100% a year and you show up, start talking about five-year plans. That's a difficult dynamic. So we had an unbelievably committed leadership team, so passionate about this. When they were rolling out the programs, I'll never forget this, the sales leader talking to all of the salespeople, including the most junior sales folks who would never have ownership. I'm getting emotional talking about it because he could see what this could be. We had a pretty favorable ratio of employees to equity check. 800 employees wasn't thousands. So you could make the math work and show people a meaningful amount of upside. And the employee base, while the churn was higher than we wanted, wasn't out of control. Those are some key success factors that looking back over the many times we've done this, when has it gone better than others? Those would be some things we've noticed.
0: I'm trying to do the math in my head. 800 employees, you mentioned truck drivers making a million
1: dollars. How much did this pool add up to that went to the employees? I think it was 3.5% of the company in options. Of the 800 folks, maybe the top 200 got outright grants, made meaningful investments in the company, and were traditional management equity plan participants as you would normally think of it. And then the other 600 would have been in this pool, which was around 3 3 3.5% of the company, something like that. Let's talk about the
0: exit. You've had great success with this business. You've done 80% of what you want to do.
1: How do you think about who the next owner should be? We had a lot of inbounds from strategics, from financial sponsors, from family offices, you name it. We got a lot of inbound interest on the business. Obviously, we're fiduciaries, so we have to seek out the best outcome for our investors. Having said that, given the culture that was built, it's not hard to believe that the people who value this culture are the ones who are going to pay the high price. So somebody who's maybe more of a slash and burn corporate buyer, I'm going to make this up. We didn't have one of those in the field but they're not going to pay the winning price anyway. So when a core comes along and you look at how Newcore operates, how they treat their people, their safety record is legendary. Their profit sharing program, if you look at their financials, I think their manufacturing plant employees made last year on top of their wages, like $35,000 in profit sharing, a lot of money. Now that was an epic year for steel, I concede, but still that's a philosophy that you don't see everywhere. So when Nucor came calling at the same time, many others did there was reason to believe this could be the best thing for our investors to engage with them on an exclusive basis. And we think they could pay a market clearing price and it'd be the right thing for the employees. I'd love to talk a bit about this ownership idea.
0: Got a lot of press this time around. And when we were chatting, I learned that you've been doing it for a long time. Why don't you take me back to how this idea of extending ownership beyond just management ranks got started here?
1: My dad was a construction worker. He operated a road grader at a small construction company in Chicago, and his dream was always profit sharing. There was a lot of conflict and incentive misalignment that he highlighted to me as a kid. If you make 15 bucks an hour, all you want are more hours. That's all you care about. And ideally some overtime, as long as it's scheduled in a fair way. And the employer wants exactly the opposite. So it was nonstop fights over hours that led to strikes that we lived through and lots of just bad behavior. And my dad always thought profit sharing was the answer. Alignment. My dad would say, shouldn't I care about quality, cost, doing the job right on time? But I don't. That was the early seed in my mind of why this could be important. And then if you fast forward to the first investment job I had, two things happen. The very first thing that this firm had me work on was a closing funds flow. They don't really do this anymore, but 20 whatever years ago, Funds flows were all manual. So meaning a company sold, you need to disperse all of these funds. How does that get done? It used to be on the phone and it was all voice confirmation of wires. And that was my job for like two days. I did all these wire transfers. And so I'm on the phone with the bank and then I'm on the phone with people receiving the wires in their bank and we're confirming account numbers and amounts. When we were doing the confirmation, the assistant treasurer was just overcome with emotion of what this was gonna mean for his life. Six hours earlier, had gotten off the phone with the CEO and was like, yep, got the X million dollars, click. That was a moment of, wow, this is so impactful, the deeper it goes. And you just start to think about how motivating it is and how rewarding it is the further you go into an organization. The second thing I worked on was an ESOP. An ESOP is this 1974 law. The government wanted to encourage broader ownership. So if you shared 100% of the common equity, which is one of the challenges with an ESOP. So all other institutional investors can only be really in debt with warrants because all the common needs go to the employees. If you did that, you paid no income taxes as a company. And as a seller into an ESOP, you could basically avoid capital gains. I was totally fascinated with that. Spent a bunch of time studying it. When I went to business school, this is what I spent my whole second year understanding. Fast forward to when I got into a leadership position at KKR, I started experimenting with broad forms of ownership. The first one being a manufacturing business where we were looking for different ideas of how to improve retention. It starts with obvious things, wages, benefits, scheduling, work conditions, safety, and then extended to let's try ownership. Once again, it's not like you did that and overnight things change, but it gets people's attention. We started that about 12 years ago extended that across our entire industrials portfolio over a period of time. So we've done it maybe 12 times with manufacturing businesses. And then in total today have 25 live cases of this across all of our different verticals in the U.S. And this is now our new way of operating in the U.S. and I think soon to be in Europe as well. Love to hear
0: about how you extended that outside of just what
1: you're doing in the sector and then more broadly KKR to the industry. We started getting phone calls from public companies, families, other GPs saying, we think this is a good idea. We've thought about it. We've tried it. How have you gotten past SEC regulations or tax accounting challenges? How are you administering these programs? How do you ever communicate it in a way people actually understand it and value it? A million questions coming in. We decided that there could be real benefits to collaborating because this is very hard to do and we don't have all the answers. There could be risks to not collaborating. One of our peers called and said, Hey, we're going to do this. Take a worker in one of our factories who makes $40,000. Like, how much should that person invest? And as I mentioned earlier, one of our core beliefs is that should be zero. We don't want to be pushing risk onto people. And you can imagine how bad it could be for the private equity industry, the investment industry more broadly, if workers start risking capital and deals go bad. We saw opportunity. For collaboration, we saw opportunity for massively scaling the impact. So we have 900,000 employees. If we were to scale this across all of our businesses, that would be really impactful. But what if the top 20 private equity firms did it? What if the whole private equity industry did it? You'd be talking about transformational change. So that was exciting. And then there was the risk side of, geez, if we don't collaborate, we've either stepped in potholes that we'd rather other people don't, or very nearly stepped in potholes that could have really been bad. So that was how our thinking went. And then, as we engaged on that idea with other organizations, whether it was nonprofits like Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, banks, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, really all the banks were excited about this, McKinsey, EY, Deloitte, unions, labor officials, pensions, everyone seemed to say, if we could really make this work, this could be something. So, why don't we all work on it together? And that was the formation of Ownership Works. And what's been the impact from that formation to today? So, we've got about 20, private equity firms signed up. And by signed up, I mean, they're committed to doing this at least a few times in their portfolio, following our standards and then sharing some data back to the nonprofit so we can track where's the money going, who's being impacted, what's happening to turnover and engagement. We've worked with some public companies on this, continue to work with some public companies on this, some family-owned businesses, some restaurant chains. The most heartening thing is you've actually got people talking who largely have just been throwing grenades at each other. So we've actually got labor talking to capital with employees at the center of the discussion of, yes, how do we move business performance, but how do we help workers who have no access to ownership of any sort? And without access to ownership of any sort, it's hard to get anywhere. As Darren Walker of Ford Foundation says, it's become normal in the U.S. to work 50 hours a week and be on federal assistance. Somehow that's happened. A lot of these folks don't have savings to invest, to get ahead. So how are they going to get ownership? And this is one of the ways to put ownership in their hands and do it in a way that it could actually pay for itself through productivity and better performance. What have the results been? The results have been great. They are bifurcated between leadership teams who just believe, and they are willing to put years of work into this. And in those situations, you see cultures transformed. And then there are some who rolled it out, they did it, but there wasn't the financial education, the information sharing, all this effort around engagement, and the results are more modest. Interestingly, there's not that much in the middle. We haven't had that many of, it kind of worked. It was Ingersoll Rand where the quit rate went from 20% a year to 2%, and the engagement scores went from the 19th percentile to the 90th. Total transformation took nine years. In our experience, you have those or the CHIs, or you have ones that kind of went sideways. I attribute that really to leadership. I'd love to hear any key takeaways from your experience with CHI. Key takeaways would be, be patient. It takes a long time. And not only does it take a long time, but keep in mind how much water is under the bridge between management and worker. It's not like you're going to do this and trust is going to magically appear overnight. As an example, even after years of working hard on this, when the leadership team during COVID said, look, safety is a core value or it's not, and here it is. And as a result, there's going to be hand-washing stations and temperature guns at the door, and you're going to wear a mask. People flipped out over that. The CEO was like, golly, how much more could I have done for the workforce between ownership, air conditioning the plant, new break rooms, cafeteria? Haven't I earned some trust here? It's those moments you just got to remember generations of conflict it's not going to change overnight. So that would be another takeaway for me. I think we've gotten it right on the back end in terms of when we sold the business, prepaying for financial coaching with Goldman Sachs, prepaying for tax help to make sure people appropriately and timely file their taxes. We did some of that work, as I said, along the way, but at exit, you really get people's attention because there's big dollars flowing and they're more likely to engage there. Those would be some of the takeaways.
0: You shared a video with me of being there at the plant when the CEO and you started sharing what these economics were going to be that were flowing to the workers. And we'd love to hear what that
1: experience was like. That was the announcement of that pool I mentioned earlier for the 600 workers who weren't in the equity plan of what that would mean for each of the employees. And what we did, first thing was we spent the first five or 10 minutes recounting the journey. And you might ask, well, why would you do that? We wanted to make sure it sunk in that you earned this. These are folks who never had something like this. And before we got into the numbers, we wanted to review, revenue was up 120%. You took all this market share, lead time advantage versus the competition gapped out massively. Despite the 120% revenue growth, scrap only grew 7%. Look at what we did with working capital. Look what we did with safety, what you did with all of these things. We spent a good 10 minutes on that. And people knew something was coming. So there was a little bit of, can we get to the action? But I think that was important. The next thing was sharing that the company was sold. We'd signed a deal this was a Wednesday. It wasn't going to be public till Monday. This is going to sound like a small thing. That's a big deal to people when you have hundreds of workers in a plant who never get told anything in a typical company. This is confidential. It's not going to be public. You need to stay off social media. You can't talk to anyone about this. That level of trust is a small example of what we try to create in these companies. I thought that was a cool moment. And then when we got into it, obviously incredible excitement, still a little bit of disbelief, but tons of tears of joy, hugs. We had some food trucks brought in and we ended up staying in the parking lot for hours and hours and hours talking. And all of the stories, people who were going to get out of debt, pay off their home, be able to invest for the first time, help disabled grandchildren. What was also remarkable is within 24 hours, many of these folks had not had wealth before. Were turning to, what can I do now? People were making commitments to help fund the drilling of freshwater wells in Africa and giving to their church, very special group of people in this company.
0: There's been this long history in private equity of aligning yourselves with the management team. We know there's a big income divide. How much do you think it impacts the performance of the company when it's the employees below those management ranks that are rewarded with
1: equity? Number one, I think we as a society are massively misallocating resources in overpaying the top people. You can make that case about private equity, about investors like me, about CEOs. We are not achieving optimal aggregate outcomes. As comp goes up, I do think performance goes up. People are less likely to quit. It levels off faster than we think that they have enough because people don't really work for money. And then I think performance declines. People get risk averse. If somebody's looking at a huge path, they just don't want to screw it up. I think private equity is making a mistake by aggregating all the economics in such a sliver of the company. We would all be better off as investors put aside the good to society by more evenly distributing it because the senior people are going to quickly tap out in terms of the incremental motivation through more money. And the people deep in the organization who have many times never felt respected, never felt recognized in their jobs, just the act of granting an opportunity can unleash an emotional response that is surprising. Again, it's not going to solve all your problems overnight, but at least a third of the time, it's tears even just on the rollout of the program where people are shocked to be recognized. My opinion, no question, if we can get this right as an industry, it's going to be good for workers, good for society, and better for returns because I don't think we're allocating equity in a smart way.
0: Pete, I have one closing question I want to
1: ask you, which is, what is your favorite aspect of private equity? My favorite aspect of private equity, which ties into why I'm optimistic about the asset class, is the governance structure. If we want to drive change through the business world, you could do it company by company. You could try and go convince one by one, do something different, whether that's for climate or labor or what have you. Or in a more concentrated way, could you convince Blackstone, Carlyle, TPG, Apollo, Ares, Warburg-Pincus, Bain, a handful of companies, which each control half a million, million employees. That is what I think is exciting about the opportunity ahead of our industry in the next 10 years, is can we all get aligned on key climate and labor issues and drive real outcomes? Private equity is all about aligning incentives and driving change. That's what the industry was founded on. And if we could put that to work on some key societal problems, which, by the way, will also deliver better returns, that would be my favorite aspect of PE and what I'm most optimistic about.
0: Pete, thanks so much for sharing the story and taking time. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.